Here's a few from his uh, new album, even one about Trump at the end. Enjoy, Larry Kerwin.
Marky. We're here in West Seneca, episode 31. We have the most famous person that we've had on the podcast so far. Uh, he is from Wexford, Ireland, an Irish writer, musician, and most noted the lead singer of the New York-based Irish rock band Black 47, Larry Kerwin. Larry, how are you? Uh, guys, I've, I've had better days, but <laughs> here I am. I'm yeah. in one piece and ready to go. Larry's going to play the South Buffalo Irish Fest today, so we got in touch with his people. They called our people, and here we are. What you been up to, Larry? Man, um, well, it's been over four years since Black 47 um, disbanded, and then I went back into theater. I'd been a theater guy before that, uh, a playwright. And one of the reasons in disbanding Black 47 was that I could finally take opportunities to do the plays I'd written. Lots of times with the band, I always put the band first because it was uh, six members of the band and two of a crew. So, you know, it was really important that everyone was able to make a living out of it. Uh, because of that, even though I was a writer or a playwright and a novelist, I often didn't take the, the opportunities that um, arose through the writing. So when the band was finished, I just uh, continued to do solo gigs, but I really devoted the time to writing uh, and to getting some of the plays uh, and the musicals up on stage. And now one of them is uh, going to Broadway. It was originally called Hard Times and now called Paradise Square, and that'll be on Broadway next year. So. It's, Congratulations. Uh, it's booming along. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Tell us a little about that play. What's that about? Man, it came from so many different influences. Um, it felt like I was preparing for it all my life. Uh, when I was a little boy, I was raised by an old grandfather back in Wexford. He was very old, and um, I was sent to look after him when I was about seven. That's the way it happened in Ireland in those days. The eldest son would go and live with the grandfather or grandmother, if the case might be, and look after them. And he was a great storyteller, and he used to tell me about um, an area in New York City, although he'd never been there, called the Five Points. And that was down at the bottom of Manhattan, like below Greenwich Village. And it was the area that the famine Irish moved into. And... Um, at the same time, back in Ireland, I was very much into, as everybody was, the music of Stephen Foster, uh, which people find very strange, but he was huge throughout Ireland and England. And so when I came to New York, I, I went and, and discovered where the Five Points was. It's now um, the courthouse area in lower Manhattan. And then I delved into the history of it. And I found out that the Irish, when they came here, particularly the women, when they moved into the Five Points, um, went to the black dance halls there and married black men. This was something that I'd never heard of before and had children. And these children and the families were called amalgamationists by what were considered, the, they considered the uptown Protestants who really disliked the Irish and the blacks. Now the... Uptown Protestants, so we got a real problem. Not only do we have blacks and Irish, but we have them marrying, so we're going to have black Catholics. They hated Catholics above everything. Yeah. So um, I got really fascinated by this, and I found out that Stephen Foster lived in the Five Points too at the same time, and that the whole thing came apart on July 13th, 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, when President Lincoln brought in a draft. And when he brought in the draft... There was a provision in it that if you had $300, you could um, buy your way out of the army. And this enraged the Irish because no Irish person had $300. And they had already suffered huge losses in the U.S. Army, particularly at the Battle of Fredericksburg, where they were used as cannon fodder. And there were riots. And one of the effects of the riots were that the black dance halls were closed down, a dozen black people were hung, and the amalgamationist families had to, s to leave the Five Points and basically went back into the black communities. And life went on, and nobody mentioned this. 
So I thought, wow, what a great subject. And so using the music of Stephen Foster, I wrote a musical called Hard Times. And the word got to a famous producer in Toronto called Gart Trubinsky, who had done Showboat and um, Kiss of a Spider Woman and all these other play musicals and he got in touch with me and said let's you, re- you you read a lot about you there the one quote that i seen that was great is when you left ireland it was hard for you because everybody you knew was irish and that's kind of like us in buffalo we think everybody's from buffalo and then when we go someplace it's tough for us yeah talk to us about that when you got to the city because you moved to new york city from ireland and it, it was it that difficult to get used to or did you embrace it oh i embraced it instantly because I, I took it the other way. When I was living in Ireland, Ireland was very much a, a, a white, homogenous country when I grew up there. It's not now. It's, right. it's changed. And in lots of ways, it's better that way because there's, there's new influences in there. Um, but it was very Catholic. And uh, I don't mean that being Catholic is bad or anything, but it was very much the church was running things. And, you know, I rebelled against that. So when I got to... Well, first of all, I saw Midnight Cowboy, and I thought, man, <laughs> I want a piece of that. <laughs> so I just hopped on a plane, and I had a student visa. And the American government was great at that point. What they did was um, they allowed Irish students to come in and work for the summer and give you a Social Security number and then go back and fund your education in Ireland. But I didn't go back. I stayed, and I had a social security number, but I was illegal in the country, and it took me three years to become legal, so I couldn't go back in that time. So by the time I went back to Ireland, you know, it, it seemed really straight to me because this was the mid-'70s, and I was living on the streets of the East Village. You know, CBGBs had just started, and... You know, it was a whole new world, and I was um, hanging out in Malachi McCourt's bar, uh, the the Bells of Hell, so that was a whole literary side. So it was all these, say, people like Pete Hamill were in there, and Lester Bangs, whom you guys probably know from, from the punk scene. Lester was a big friend, and uh, so I was getting two sides. I was getting CBGBs and getting the Irish literary thing. And uh, so when I went back to Wexford, it was like, man, this place is really quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but New York now is like completely different too. So like the, totally. you knew it when it was like dingy. The, yeah, it was. Yeah, and it, it was just a great place to live then because <clears throat> you could live for practically nothing. Um, I had an apartment for the cheapest apartment I ever have is ninety dollars a month but I had apartments for 90 to 200. I never paid more than $200 a month for an apartment back in those days. And uh, so you got a couple of gigs. And I was with a guy called Pierce Turner. Uh, we're still great friends. And we, used to, we had a duo called Turner and Kerwin of Wexford. The hardest name in the world to say. <laughs> People would call it Kerner and Turwin of where? <laughs> and so we would go up to the Bronx and play the Irish bars in the Bronx. So you got two gigs a week. You could, you didn't have to work. You didn't have to do anything. And you had plenty of money. Yeah. Weed was cheap. Booze was cheap. Everything was cheap. Yeah. And um, it was just a, it was a great way to grow up and to... Um, to learn about life on the streets of New York. I mean, it was dangerous. You know? Oh, yeah. I had a guy stick a bayonet on my, on my Adam's apple one night when he was mugging me. I didn't mind him mugging me. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he was a junkie, and his hand was shaking, so I could feel the blood coming down my Adam's apple. Like, is this guy going to kill me? I only have $20. <laughs> and we had this whole to-do about, I got to put my hand in my pocket to give you the $20. He said, don't put your hand in your pocket. <laughs> Like you have a, a gun or a knife in there. I said, well, you know, we got we to gotta work this out, man, because <laughs> I don't like this knife being in my throat. He said, a knife, it's a bayonet. That's how I knew it was a bayonet. So, well, even worse, yeah. <laughs> how do I give you the 20? And he said, all right, we'll count to three, and you take it really slow and get it in there and get the 20 out and hold it up in the air, and I'll let me snatch it and run. 
Oh, you're a negotiator as well. We'll add that to the Yeah, we like the negotiation the was, was pretty big. <laughs> so your music chops, you came to New York with, what were you playing at the time? What was your... I came with Pierce and we, we were songwriters and we were just out there, man. It was like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't even know how to describe it. If you look it up on um, Google or something, it was kind of like Irish acid rock, <laughs> you know, from... That's how the Daily News called it. I wouldn't have called it that, but it was, it was really original. Our big thing was that we don't sell out. <laughs> Not that anyone was making any offers for us, <laughs> yeah. but that was our whole thing. So it was, he, he played um, a synthesizer and a clavinet and a hi-hat with his left foot, <laughs> and I played a real souped-up um, acoustic guitar, kind of the one I'd be playing tonight and uh, a bass drum. So we, we were able to make this tremendous sound. Just two of you. <laughs> Just two of us, we were a full band. Like, uh. <laughs> and the two of us could sing, we could sing really well in harmony together, so. That's uh, and then we, we changed that term, we became major thinkers, because we <coughs> became influenced by the whole punk scene in the late 70s, and, um, and then we got a deal with um, with, epic portrait to be the next big thing and then we we were on the road with Cindy Lauper for a long time and UB40 and then we made an album for them and they couldn't decide what the single was going to be and we got dropped <laughs> and at that was the point in around 1985 I thought now is my chance to become Pierce wanted to go ahead and do a solo thing and I wanted to become a writer, and that's uh, how I got into playwriting. And I didn't, then we formed, Chris Byrne and I, who was a cop also oh from yeah. New York City, we formed uh, Black 47 in the end of 1989. Tell us, uh, tell our listeners uh, the origin of the name Black 47. Yeah, sorry, we got these drinks mixed up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Not at all. Um, my grandfather, um, I told you about the the old man. His father had seen the Irish potato famine and had told him the stories about it. And as my grandfather got older, he went into um, senility, and he used to speak. He used to speak to his father, and he would. I don't know whether the father was speaking to him or he was just trying to show me what the father would speak like. He would speak back. He would have the conversations with his father. And his father would describe the, um, the famine, the great hunger. And it left an indelible impression on me because he talked about the people dying in the fields with the green stains on their mouth from eating grass. And, uh wow. So when Chris Byrne and I met, uh, I had given up music, and but Chris had seen major thinkers, and I happened to walk into a bar that he was playing in, and uh, I hadn't been um, in an Irish bar for a long time even. Uh, it was a place called Paddy Riley's, and Chris got me up to play, and I was thinking, I don't even know if I can play anymore. And the the bartender name was Dimpna said have a shot of whiskey and I said nah the whiskey tasted good though and then she said have another one <laughs> I had a second one and I got up and I played for about two hours with Chris <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end of the night um he was all depressed and I was sitting at the bar and I said what's, what's the problem man he said well I have a this band that I'm in and uh we're breaking up tonight. I have all these gigs next week and the week after, and I'm a cop, and, but I need the money to, uh, you know, keep my family going. He had a young family, and uh, I said, I'll do them with you. He said, really? I said, yeah. He said, what do we call it? I said, I knew Chris was political and everything, and I was political. Let's call it Black 47, and... It's simple, too. It was part of it was oh, sure. I'd come from Turner and Curwen of Wexford, which was impossible to say. So <laughs> Black 47 said, I go, but he understood it was about the potato famine. And it, to us, it was the same as the Jewish 
cry never again that this that this should be brought into American and Irish consciousness what actually happened then and that it shouldn't be allowed to happen again. Well, and that yeah, was the start of it. We have a monument here uh, for the famine. It's pretty yep. cool. There's oh, lots yeah. of names and lots of people. So then Black 47 really just starts kicking like gangbusters. I mean, you, you guys really were on the map from that 90 to 94, wouldn't you say? When you guys first played those original shows, were you guys playing original music, or were you guys playing like, like um, traditional tunes, or? Well, one of the things uh, Chris and I decided on straight away was we're going to the Bronx. We're gonna have to do four sets. Come down to my place, and I'll see what original songs I have that we could adapt. And you, because uh, I hadn't really played. Irish traditional music, you write, a, Chris was a, uh, a pipes player, but also a rapper and wow. a cop. <laughs> Chris, he's a pretty amazing guy. Yeah. You, sh- you should get to, to talk to him sometime. He's great. And uh, so we put together three sets. We figure we'd repeat the first set, just anything we could do, but a lot of it was original, and I said, we, well, we have to do, within three months, we got to be an original band, and um, he's, he was cool, and uh, so the first shows um, were a mixture of Irish tradition, or anything I could think of, Bob Marley songs, Van Morrison songs, um, because I was playing the guitar, and I was programming a drum machine, and Chris was playing pipes, and whistles and singing and then um after a couple of gigs i had been in a freeform band um an improv band down in the in the village um uh, with a poet called copernicus and the trombone player from that fred parcells thought that what we were doing was an improv band so he just came and Sat in. You know, he, didn't, he didn't even introduce himself to Chris. He took out the bone and started playing. <laughs> and when I heard the pipes and the bone together, I knew, wow, what a sound. I never heard that sound before. It was mournful, and yet it was New Orleans and everything. And um, so then um, Jeffrey Blyde showed up. Uh, his he had been with Dexy's Midnight Runners and his uh, his wife and I were old friends. I met her in a park one day and she said, Jeff's gone nuts. He's sitting at home. He's out here. Uh, Dexy's had broken up and the Bureau was the other band he was in after that. And he'd just come off the road with uh, Elvis Costello and um, she said, he's, he's gone nuts at home. I said, send him down. <laughs> and Jeff showed up, an English guy, and we're all doing Republican kind of rock. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and the first guy who said it to him, he says, you fucking Irish. None of you hates fucking Margaret Thatcher as much as I fucking do. <laughs> and he was a hero amongst the Irish at that point. He said that over the microphones. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. So it was an intense band. Uh, yeah, I, I remember hearing a lot of guys from that generation hate Margaret Thatcher. Oh. I Roger read. Waters yeah, he was always on her. Yeah, yeah, wasn't a very well liked woman. Yeah, that Cypress Avenue song. That's a that's a street in Belfast, right? And yeah, that's Van Morrison's yeah. little yeah. known Irish song. You know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I go there all the time to Cypress Avenue. Oh yeah. I take a I take a group over every year, like on October first, we go back to Belfast and uh, show them Cypress Avenue and take them into the different areas of Belfast, you know, the, the Protestant areas and the Catholic areas, and it's a real eye-opener. Wow. So we're cooking with gas with Black 47, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, New York at the time, it's like po- like poets and all that, like, it's crazy right there, right? right before the alternative starts, so, it, it, I mean, I'm a little, I'm, I'll be 39, this sounds like it's more like Boss Tones, Black 47, all that starts getting together, right? We played, actually, up here, I think, with the Boss Tones. Really? Yeah, or no, it was Albany. It was a big festival in Albany. Yeah, I always loved that band. Yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. yeah. 
Um, yeah, we all kind of had gone through the punk scene in some form or other, so it was aggressive music. When we were going to these Irish bars, and the first thing I would say is, that fucking television has to go off. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, we don't play with television to... Bartenders be outraged. It's the first band I'd ever told him to turn a, the <laughs> fucking television off. <laughs> and he'd say, the, the lads at the bar are watching it. I said, fuck the lads. They're here to see us. And I said, you look down at this crowd. None of them were there to see us. <laughs> but that was the way we were laying it down. And it was like, look at us. You're not looking at each other. Because that's the way it was in CBGB. It was a frontal assault on the audience so well, there was a lot of attitude yeah. did i see that you guys uh, were banned from there at some point <laughs> yeah i was banned personally <laughs> you, were, you were banned from cbgb's i was banned from cbgb and not only that fucking hilly was a good friend of mine the owner <laughs> really <laughs> and i'm not saying why no, it's yeah. a secret all this time but, but funny thing i went to, to their last show there and hilly was dying at the time and uh he came over to me and we were talking for a long time. And he said, Larry, why did I ban you? <laughs> 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 and he was really sick. And we're like, ah, I'll tell you next time I see you, Hilly. Uh, of course, I never saw him again. Uh, Patty Smith was playing in the background and she was so loud and everything. I was thinking, I can't get into this now. <laughs> what a Hitchcock ending, though. You know, there's not too many of those anymore. You know, <laughs> I think I've, I may be the only person. I've never heard of anyone else getting banned because Hilly didn't ban anyone. Kind of, <laughs> it was a specific incident, and we we got over it. Yeah, I was in there once towards the end of the the '97. I think I caught it right at right the before, very end, yeah. and it and it did live up. It's smelly, and uh, I didn't see a dog shitting everywhere. Was that a <laughs> myth, or did that really happen? Well, he had two dogs. He had those. I don't know what they're called. It's what the pharaohs used to put in the tomb. The, yeah, the thin, tall, thin ones. Almost <clears> like <throat> a greyhound, almost. It was like a greyhound, yeah. except out of hair. Yeah, and they at that point it was a pool table, right, kind of in the center of it, and uh, they. They're stupid fucking dogs, too. Instead of getting under the table, they would be right on the outside of it, but it was dark, so you couldn't see down there. So you would continue to stand on their feet and everything. So, uh, so you'd stand on a foot. <laughs> 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 what the fuck is that? <laughs> ever, ever play the wetlands in New York? Man. That was a place, wasn't it? We played there about two, three times a year. I'll tell you a story about wetlands. See, my thing with uh, with Black Forty Seven is <clears throat> was that we stay even though we were playing this original music and everything. That in Manhattan we only played at in the early years for the first couple of years in um, Patty Riley's because we started there. So we played there two nights a week, Wednesdays and Saturdays, and sometimes we do double gigs on a Saturday. We play somewhere else outside the city. But and it worked because um, all the press knew that we would be there and there would be big crowds of celebrities there, so they would cover it. So we were getting this huge coverage. But including Joe Strummer used to come all the time to see us, and Joe was a great friend and a great pusher. So we used to get calls from the other clubs in the city, the non-Irish places, to please come and play. And Wetlands was the one. Walter was the booker. I still remember his name. And he used to call me regularly. And finally he called me one day and he said, Listen, Mark, do me one fucking gig so you can get Strummer off my back because he's down here every week saying you gotta hire Black 47. And uh, that then, because Joe was such a friend, we played there and we, we continued to play there. And so we did, I think, uh, maybe eight St. Patrick's Day shows or something oh, wow. like that. And we always played New York St. Patrick's Night. I was sad to hear when it when they closed it down. What what a great Marky, this club it was more of a it was a basement kind of club. Yeah. And then there was another basement where you go down for the backstage and stuff like that. So it was an amazing place and uh it was loose. Oh yeah. Very loose. And the their merch was a cut out VW bus. They would they cut cut it in half, threw it against the wall, and that's where they sold the merch right out of there. It was pretty neat. It was a great place, and then 
when it closed down, all the people went to um, to work in BB King's on Forty Second Street, and then eventually we ended back up there playing um, on St. Patrick's Night, and then we did our final show there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So in the in the '90s, a lot of people want a piece of Black Forty Seven. Yeah. I mean, you're getting t- a lot of TV shows. I mean, you were on Letterman and things like that. We were on O'Brien, I think, five times. In fact, we did the... He was a friend of ours and a fan of the band. So <clears throat> when he was doing his tryout show, was it NBC he was with? Yeah. Um, he asked us to go on. And I had a a book or a play? No. It was a play at that point called Liverpool Fantasy about the the Beatles if they hadn't made it, and he loved that. So, for him to feel comfortable, he said, "Let's talk about that." This wasn't a public show. This was well, it was an audience, but it was for the suits at NBC to watch him. So we played, and then he interviewed me, and that was the. That's how we got the gig. Tell Marky about that play that you did with the Beatles. This is interesting. Um, it was an idea I had that, what was the original idea? That what would have happened if the Beatles hadn't made it? How would the world have been different? So I did it as a play, and it was a, a visualization of what would the world have been. So Please Please Me was their first hit in England. And they break up during the recording of it. Um, they want them to do Till There Was You as a single. And John walks out and George and Ringo wa- leave after him. And Paul stays and they release Till There Was You as a single under his name. But they change his name to Paul Montana. And it doesn't hit in England, but it hits in the States. So he moves to the States and moves to Vegas and becomes like a, a Vegas type singer. And then things aren't going well with him. And 20 years later, he comes, <coughs> he wants to show the roots of Montana, which is the Beatles. And he comes back wow. looking for the boys who are waiting for him. <laughs> <laughs> That's creative, man. Yeah, Very like, creative. so, like, that's in a, a novel now too. I turned it into a novel eventually. Oh, that's great. See, like how how do you like do like when you think of these stories and stuff and like do you ever think of like your songs as stories or poems or when you're writing or like how what's your process? Well, I think it changed when I uh the four years I spent being a, a playwright when I went back into writing for Black Forty Seven and I didn't even notice it at the time. Everything was character driven. Um it was only Critics noticed that, but I had changed my whole style of writing. You know, everything was a story of, of some sort. You know. Wow. So that was that was it. So it happened without me knowing. And it changed the way that you wrote your songs? And I was just writing from the head. And the first, well, not just the first years, the full 25 years of Black 47 was like a blur because well, we did 2,500 gigs, so we were always playing... And then <coughs> we didn't take time off to record. We would play and record at the same time. And so it was just intense. Yeah. Where, where's your favorite places to play, Larry? Other than South Buffalo. <laughs> I never thought in terms of that. It was weird because I, I get asked that question. As long as the crowd there. Yeah, it, it as long no as they're into it, right? It didn't matter if it was a pub or a stadium. Yeah. And you did... Yeah, well, you change the set differently, but um, we changed the sets anyway, so it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Never played the same gig. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Talk about that because that that's like almost like the Grateful Dead of what well, you guys are, uh, you know, Irish rock or what? Yeah, Irish punk. Some some would say Irish punk and rock, but we we had so many different influences. I mean, Fred the trombone player was a big jazz guy, a big big band. Jeff Blyde was English soul, you know, and and also classical. Both those guys were classical guys. Uh, Chris Byrne was uh, an Irish Illum Pipes player, but was also a cop and a rapper. It's just Very amazing. Urban guy. And uh, Thomas Hamlin and I had played for years, but he had gone off and done, uh, he was very much into African rhythms. And then whatever bass player we had would come in with their influences. So it was 
always different styles and influences. And then it's got to feel good to, you know, get, you know, like the Dropkick Murphys, obviously, or you guys influenced them and, and things like that. So then it goes full circle. Yeah. They would have done their own thing, though, anyway, because, sure. they, you know, and, and um, Flog and Molly, um, Dave was a friend of mine. Dave used to come see us in, um, uh, in L.A. when we'd play there. Yeah, I remember him telling me I'm I'm forming this band Flog and Molly. I was thinking, good luck, man. <laughs> Tough <laughs> yeah, out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you guys you guys found that sound, and it, it, like now South Buffalo, you come here and like having you guys here was it was like one of the proudest moments of the uh, Ray McGurn when he you know booked you guys and had you there. He was like beating his chest, and oh, it was yeah, so he cool. Was very proud. Uh, yeah, to right. have you guys here. Yeah. Yeah, we never thought of ourselves as as Celtic rock or anything like that. As I was telling you earlier, I, when we were forming the band, we we didn't even stop to think what was the band going to sound like. You know, it was a guitar, electric guitar, and Illin pipes. And because we were playing in rowdy um, Irish bars, when Chris showed up the first night to to rehearse. I was actually using the drum machine um, for a musical I was writing at the time called Days of Rage, and I'd just written this song called Too Late to Turn Back, which is on, I think, the first Black 47 album, or the second. And I thought I was going to start playing the acoustic or something, but I had the, I was playing this with the electric with the the big sound of the drums, and Chris said, hey, there's our sound. You know, it'll help us in these bars because we can be louder than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it came about, that that particular driving sound. Um, but I wasn't thinking Celtic rock or anything. I was thinking original songs. And we have, first of all, a guitar and Illin pipes and tin whistle and a baron that Chris was playing. How do you fit those in? And then Fred showed up with the trombone. And we had the twin <coughs> drive of the twin melodic drive of the pipes and the the bone and then fred showed up and or jeff showed up and he's got the saxophone so now we got the three things playing and we didn't use a bass player at first at all because i used to program a really heavy kick drum and uh, people couldn't get over a little drum machine like that <laughs> <laughs> the kick drum the kick drum sometimes would break speakers <laughs> yeah that's i used creative. to program five or six kick drums in on one to get the full spectrum of sound on it and that real it was one real deep rap one <laughs> I used to put in there and then hammy came in to play uh he wasn't playing a full set because we were so drum machine driven but I, I wasn't using, you know, alternative styles. I was programming everything to suit whatever song I was writing. Yeah. And uh, so he was playing African shit on top of what we were doing. And and then whatever. Then eventually uh, Dave Conrad came in. And he was a great bass player. And he said, fuck am I going to play? You got that drum machine going so loud. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta find your spots, man. Don't come to me. Yeah. Like yeah. the talking heads. Enough shit going on. Yeah. You play something different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, did you ever, uh, were you ever surprised about, uh, wow, I can't believe this actor or this band listens to Black 47? Mm. Any of those calls to, hey, join us on stage? You, you hear a lot of that now, but not yeah. so much then. We didn't. In ways, I didn't even like it. Because really? it was attracting um, gawkers, as we call them, who were coming to see, say, Matt Dillon is there, or, you know, Joe Strummer is there, or whatever, whoever used to come, Liam Neeson, I mean, it was, everyone was there at one point or another. Um, to us, it was like, you're here to see us. Yeah, right. Them. Yeah. Sit guys, down, yeah. Joe. Well, you didn't have to say to Joe, because Joe melted into the wall. <laughs> Joe is totally into Black 47. And any celebrity who came, who didn't like it, just didn't come back then because if they were there to be seen, we weren't giving them any attention. Good for you. Yeah, I mean, I always felt it was more important to talk to the regular person than to talk to the celebrity. The celebrity is 
doing their own thing, but the regular yeah. person is is the one who's paying your bread and butter. But we wouldn't allow the celebrities in free. They had to, everyone had to pay. Good, including the record companies. <laughs> they couldn't get over. It. <laughs> <laughs> gotta pay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Th- you know, that's how we started the show was just talking to regular people. You know, like that was our thing. It's like we sometimes these people you wouldn't know their stories if you just didn't sit down and talk to them you know like it's and uh you know so in 2005 you started uh hosting a show on Sirius right so was that like you embracing like artists and other music all together is that or how did that how did you come to that I was up in Sirius Sirius had started a couple of years before that and um Meg Griffin who is a famous uh, New York DJ um, was a big Black 47 fan, but she was also a punk fan, so I knew her from CBGBs and everything. And she had a show on, she said, come on up and talk about the new book and the new CD you got. So we were, we did an hour-long show or something like that, and then we were out in the corridor, and we were all friends, we were laughing and joking, and one of the suits came by, and... Uh, heard my accent and then he called Meg over and said can this guy talk <laughs> she said put a few drinks in him he never <laughs> shut up <laughs> and uh, he said well we have to get a Celtic show on do you think this guy would suit it yeah. and she said yeah she said I'll show him how to work the um, the controls and everything and uh, so the next day she said do you want to do a, a Celtic show it'll be three hours I was thinking, Celtic, what does that mean? (laughs) And I said, yeah, I'll do it, because I figured being a musician, I'd be able to bring a different aspect to it, you know, that, you know, I could interview the different people I knew and whatever, and from a a musician's point of view and everything. And uh, so the next week or so, she said, well, we don't have much in a way Celtic music here. And I said, can you... So I brought in whatever CDs I had, and we did the first show, and um, you know, I went up, and I kept doing it. And I've been doing it for fourteen years, That's but it was great. just. But basically, after a certain point in time, I didn't want to do just traditional music. I think that's what they had in mind first, and um, but then I started, you know, seeing doing Van and. Um, you know, the drop kicks and um, I suppose uh, Dave was working at them at that time, Flog and Molly. And, uh, you know, Afro, Afro uh, Celt and things that are bringing in all the different styles. And then I began to think, well, why shouldn't it be about the diaspora? You know, so, you know, and it's Celtic. There's eight Celtic nations. So then that spread it out. But also anyone who kind of had an Irish name over here, I could put them on, because <laughs> 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 they didn't mind. You know, they they were yeah. delighted to have it be become an important show to them and have a a big um, following. That's not necessarily jigs and reels. Not that they minded that, but what they wanted to do was to be able to say <clears throat> when someone said, "What kind of Irish music you got?" Or, "Oh, it's Kerwin has Celtic Crush," you know. What kind of, um, do you have any Scottish music? Uh, this guy's got it, you know, whatever. Yeah. The, the evolution, uh, it evolved into what it is it now. Evolved into it, yeah, over a period of time. And, and sometimes over the tech people not posting what I had, you know. Um, so I would just go into the regular files. and Except for instance, Ray Davies, The Kinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a Welsh name. And then I interviewed Ray on there, and he said, "Yeah, I, I consider myself Celtic. I have a house in uh, in Cork." And I said, "Well, so I can play any kink song." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was like that, you know. Yeah. Then I got to discover all this great Scottish music and uh, Breton music, and so it was whatever I felt like. You know. Almost like you're going back to school there, in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. Ireland is like different. They have like. Uh, like banjo champions and like it, it's very deep into the music very deep yeah and different styles 
Yeah, we had a, a Crickwater who's going to be playing, probably playing now at Irish Fest, and they came on and they, you know, they're giving us the history of like Lily Pinleric and the, the what is it, the song catcher, or you know, just like how Appalachian music became bluegrass and yeah, all these th- different things, and like you know, it was kind of cool to just to get like the tr- the history of it, the tradition. Yeah, I, I talk a lot about the history and about politics and. Because it's all improv. I don't really plan it. I just uh, do your your job. <laughs> <laughs> because to plan it would take a, to plan three hours of a show. Oh yeah. So what I do is I plan the first three songs and I do a kind of a five minute talk about what the theme is going to be. But then after a couple of sets, I do three sets, thirteen sets of three songs kind of figure it works the um roughly speaking works the three hours and uh uh, so after about three sets of songs you just gotta let it go wherever it's gonna go you know right usually there's something that's happening or the next song or i'll know someone and tell a story about it or whatever well you speak of politics uh I know you weren't a big fan of George Bush after 9-11. <laughs> so I, I'm i going to take a wild guess that you're not a fan of uh, the Trumpster either, Larry. No, not at all. <laughs> Go, do you ever, uh, have you noticed more like people? Like there's a song on there. I think I'm the only one who's written a song about yeah, it. What, yeah, it, let's, it, this is Larry's new uh, EP, Heroes in Belfast. Is that how you, mm-hmm. Heroes in Belfast, Larry Kerwin and Company. Um, what's the song on there about uh, the Trumps? Second Coming Blues. Second Coming Blues. What's that about? Well, I kind of used, there's a, a, a William Butler Yeats poem called Second Coming, and I use images from that. Um, so you got to listen to it. I'm oh, yeah, we're yeah. definitely going to have a listen. I'm not even sure how I'd describe yeah. it myself. <laughs> and then, I mean, the first song, Heroes, it's a little bit of a backstory about oh, you had a David Bowie interaction. Yeah, I was in a, a club called Tier 3, which is in Tribeca, one day. And it was supposed to be a ska band, and I was really into ska. And um, I was with a guy called Donald, or not Donald Lunny, but Fellum Lunny, who is... The Sandman for Black, not Black Forty Seven, for Major Thinkers, the band before Black Forty Seven, and the the, the ska band hadn't showed up, so there was practically no one in the place. But we were too lazy to move. We were sitting at the bar drinking, and um, who comes in but David Bowie with a crowd, including Jane County, who was uh, a big punk icon, a transgender person at the time. And I, you know, Jane is pretty out there, and uh, I think David just wanted to sit down and have a chat with, he heard our accents or whatever, and he came over and said, you mind if I join you guys? And I'm thinking, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And we bought him a drink, and he bought us a drink, and we bought a few drinks, and we were talking, and Fellum and um, David had lived in West Berlin. So they had a great interconnection with that. And I had always loved West Berlin. And so a lot of it was about that. And Heroes is written about the wall and West Berlin and everything. And I told David it was my favorite song. And he explained how he and um, Fripp and Eno did the, the piece. He, he's a great mind, David. And he explained the whole way they came about it. And then we were talking about the political consequences of it and he wasn't a Thatcher fan either um, <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about the politics and then eventually was, we were there 90 minutes maybe longer three or four drinks he decided to go and he had no security ring at that point it was a different time huh? sure and I can remember how he was dressed he had a long tweed coat on and he used to wear like an Irish cap you know like your father would wear yeah. else, and he would pull that down over his eyes and no one would ever recognize him. And he went to say goodbye to Jay, and then he came back over. And um, he said, you know, I was just thinking about our conversation. He said, I could just as easily have written heroes about Belfast as I did about Berlin. And we'd been talking about the wall in Belfast and everything and the peace wall there. And then he left. 
And, you know, we went back to drinking and thinking, wow, anybody going to believe this? <laughs> <laughs> it was the day before selfies and everything. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> yeah you were going to take a picture of yeah. it, right? So I gradually just, I just kind of forgot about it. And then one day, yeah, some years back, I was um, listening to the radio. It was morning. And I heard the news David had passed away. And the whole scene flashed right back in front of my my mind uh, about Belfast and Berlin. And I thought, I started to write. I mean, it wasn't automatic writing. I knew what I was doing, but I, I was translating just a little piece of heroes as if it was in Belfast. And so I just left it there. And then I picked up the guitar. I, I never played heroes, oddly enough. Didn't know what the chords were running. I figured them out, and then I put the little bridge in for to take it into Belfast. And I was actually recording um, songs for a musical called Iraq. So it was a really hot rock band I was with, or hot players. And we had about a half an hour left, and um, we we done the songs we were supposed to do, and I said, do "You guys know Heroes," and it was, "I love that song. Everybody <laughs> loved it." I said, "Let's just do it," and so I sang it once for them, and then we recorded it, and I think we got it on the first take. You playing it tonight? Huh? You gonna play it? Yeah, tonight? I'll play oh, that's gonna be good. I yeah. can't wait. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna. Yeah, that's gonna be a surprise because I don't think anybody. You, we did our research and yeah. you know we went and we listened to other you yeah know, i didn't shows really promote done. it much i mean it got play around the country but um i was just too much into the musical theater world at this point to go out and right. do a tour or anything like that and uh so it's you, there people like it yeah. you spend a lot of time in ireland toronto a lot we we have a lot of irish catholic uh <clears throat> listeners where's your favorite place to go in ireland other than your hometown well, my favorite is always the West, even though I'm uh, from Wexford, the southeast, which is a great place. But I go to Dingle a lot in County Kerry. I spend a lot of time there. I go to Connemara in County Galway. And I go up into the Irish-speaking areas in um, Donegal. So all along the West Coast is my favorite. Yeah. And they, they say the Shannon River, there's dolphins in it. Is this true? Is what? There's dolphins in the Shannon River. There could be. I, I've never <laughs> seen one, though. <laughs> yeah. I I was talking to an older gentleman who, who's who's from Ireland, and he was, I don't know if he was putting me on, though. He said that the salt water and the fresh water, yeah. you know. They mix. They mix there, points, and yeah. sometimes the dolphins get into the Shannon River. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. That'd be something. You go yeah. to Ireland, you know, just see a dolphin. Yeah, yeah. To see a dolphin. Well, it seems like you do things your way a lot, and... Uh, calling the band to an end that's i think that's like a unique thing you know for any band and like we had uh the tragically hip and we touch right against canada and they they had to do it for other circumstances but they got to do it on their own way yeah. and then he passed away but like i think as fans like you kind of are like awesome and you got to do you did it in our hometown like how was it for you like just getting your way uh with well, the band <laughs> Yeah, I'd always wondered how the band would end because we just kept going and, um, you know, we were all friends and it was a very loved band. So breaking it up would seem like a weird thing to do. And then one night we were, we were here at the South um, Buffalo Festival and it would have been six years ago, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, it was just a great show. I always know when the show is great because the guitar seems small <laughs> in my hands for some reason, you know. That's Everything awesome. seems right. I remember thinking, wow, sound. the sound is so unique, you know. Maybe it's because I could hear everything. Sometimes on stage, uh, you know, I'm listening to the drums and the bass, and I don't hear all the horns and everything totally. Uh, maybe it was I, I heard the sound, and it was like, wow. This sounds fucking great. We're sounding as good as I've ever heard it. And then on the way back the next day, it's that stuck in my mind. I thought maybe now is the time to to go out and top, you know, to just when we're like that. But then I began to think, 
that'd be really unfair to the other guys in the band. I had this idea. So what I began to realize then over the next week or so is that um, there will be 25 years the following um, November. And we should, that would give, this was September here, that would give almost 15 months to, um, for everyone to, for us to play down and play for, play a lot of shows and play for everyone who had ever supported us, but also to um, uh, allow everyone in the band that time to, uh, you know, find new things to do. So I, I suggested it to everyone and everyone thought it was a good idea. And that was it. Wow. Yeah. And then you get into play writing. Everybody else had their own things they wanted yeah. to get into. So you, you guys were prepared. That, yeah, we a, had the that's time. That's a grown-up way to end a, yeah, a band. I've never, you never hear things like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wanted to do it right. You know? Yeah. So and I also mean, go out when you're on top. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, when you came here, the band that you described, like, man, that was your own way, you know? Then like, Well, we always did things our own way. We yeah. we never took advice. <laughs> Good for you. We, were, we're, we kind of do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. you got to – no one is as interested in it as you are. So even if you make the wrong decision, you'll learn from that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so like us as a podcast, like you've done this for 10 or 15 years. Like what would you give it as advice uh, for us moving forward, getting guests and things like that is just do it your own way. and Do it your own way and put the word out, you know, that anybody who comes into Buffalo or Toronto or wherever, you're willing to interview them. And you can give them my imprimatur, you can say. <laughs> Kerwin says you're good. So. <laughs> <laughs> I I just I gotta say this. Does anybody ever think that you're Dana Carvey? <laughs> I don't even I know. You I don't, don't know, know the, who it is. The yeah. SNL guy who did all the imitations. Oh. You look like you're Dana Carvey's character. Really? Yeah. If Dana Carvey played a character of an Irish lead singer, that's he'd be you. I never watched television, so I'm uh, a lot of. Pop culture goes beyond me. I always thought it was better that I didn't chew that it would keep the, that you'll find the right influences, but there's so much influences coming at you through pop culture that it's easy to get influenced by someone, by someone else, you know, so. Ain't that the truth? Yeah, yeah. So we we came up with this term because we've interviewed uh, people from the Irish Fest and stuff, and we call them deedly deers. These people that go around and uh, and and make music playing Irish music and they don't really have any, you know, intellect on it or anything is. So I'll ask you, is, is there a favorite song, traditional song or the story behind it that like makes it unique or, or your favorite? There's so many of them, you know, the, the, but they're not really the, um, the popular ones. I, I like the old Shannos ones. The ones that are in Gaelic mm -hmm. and, um, because the melodies are just startling, um, like Schlievnaman, which is the mountain of women. But one that you might know, or that most people know, that I, I think is very deep, is um, say Carrick Fergus. That song is still moves me, and um, she moves through the fair. You know, um, you know, there's a whole world of Irish music that Irish musicians don't go into. It, it's because you got to dig a little deeper, you know, and there's treasures there. I'm writing a, I just finished writing um, a show about Brendan Behan, the Irish playwright, and he was a, a Shannon singer, so I took some of the melodies that he used to sing and put new words to them and put them into a kind of a musical theater feel, and they sound like Broadway songs. It's the strangest thing. These old songs, they lend themselves to the same thing of, uh, of lyricism that, that some Broadway songs do. Uh, so music kind of comes around, I think. Uh, right. Oh, yeah. yeah, the uh, tradition slash influence, you know, because a lot of people are like, oh, that's stolen. It's like, yeah, or it's influenced. Yeah. And uh, you see a lot of Irish bands now – they're putting their twist, an Irish rock twist, on an old song, like kind of like Heroes. Uh, you do Bob uh, Marley songs very well, Redemption song and things like that. What's the the neatest one you think you've you've ever came up with or seen? Uh, 
I think the Black 47 version of Like a Rolling Stone was pretty intense. Like yeah. yeah. And uh, Get Up Stand Up by Bob Marley. Yeah. Um, we didn't do that many. Uh, we used to do I Fought the Law, but not the Clash version because Strummer would have killed us. <laughs> <laughs> but going right back to the uh, the Bobby Fuller 4 version, and we used to mix that in with Gloria. Oh, wow. So, yeah. uh, you know. Who are you listening to now, Lair? I don't listen to any. I listen to some rap because my son's a rapper. Really? Yeah. Um, what, 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 is, what is his? Does he have an alias? A, a, a name? What is that? Rory K. Rory, Rory K. K. Yeah. Okay. Kerwin. Um, I listen to a lot of jazz. And I listen to um, tango music. You know, I listen to well, all over the place. Yeah, That's different great. styles. I'm the so. same way lately. I've been listening to Waylon Jennings. And, yeah. And, and, uh, I met him once. He, that, oh, oh, really? He's a tough motherfucker. <laughs> 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 he was. Seriously bad. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't fuck around, huh? We played Farm Aid with him and Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash. What was that band? They had the High Women. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. And the other guy and Chris Christopherson, those three guys were angels. <laughs> and he was mean. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't even mean, but you didn't fuck with him. <laughs> yeah. The road goes on forever. Yeah, That's he didn't right. uh he didn't you know, he had no time for small talk. Oh, I bet. But you knew that because it was an aura. <laughs> Whereas Johnny Cash was approachable and uh, Willie Nelson's really. And, oh, yeah. Um, Chris Christopherson's a beautiful person. But, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to finish up, guys. Cause yeah. My, uh, oh, yeah. We're, oh, yeah. Well, starting to go like, um, are you ready to rock it tonight, Lair? Yeah. Lair's going to be rocking Cass Park. Uh, and uh, thanks for taking the time uh, to sit down with us. We wish you luck. Rory K. Luck will push the album. Yeah. And uh, Larry Kerwin, you are now licensed to talk. Ah, pleasure, guys. And you can uh, you can look up Rory K. stuff on uh, Sound, Sound, SoundCloud. Yeah. Thank okay, you so much. Thank thanks, you. Larry. Cheers, guys. Second coming All your plans You don't know what to do You feel like You crawl all over you And your innocence is gone The stars no longer gleam All of your prayers End up in a silent scream So he wanna America great again Ain't that code for Let's all be white And then things fall apart The century cannot hold The tides of their rise When deniers take control All of your hopes and dreams are Such a haze, strange days But look at baby, you ain't seen nothing yet And you wonder how This whole thing comes to pass Russian roulette, call me Anne Overconfidence The best lack conviction The worst you're on a road In 140 characters The truth is that unfold I troubles my side His gaze is pitiless Supercilious So centered as the sun with his losers and choosers and one percent users, winners are chosen for the races you've run. All your hopes and dreams are fading away. All of your certainties are in.
Come and blue 